This podcast was not produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio, but rather inside the cavity of my left nostril. But that doesn't mean that the station no longer needs your financial support to stay on air. Our community is not just studios and microphones. It's people. People like yourself, who during COVID-19 value independent community information and creativity more than ever. So we're counting on you to keep us on air. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and please support our June station appeal. Stay safe and thank you for your support. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown, I'm Rima Rattan. Late last year, the Aboriginal Studies Press released a book called Does the Media Fail Aboriginal Political Aspirations? 45 Years of News Media Reporting of Key Political Moments. Edited by Amy Thomas, Andrew Jakovovitz and Heidi Norman, the book seeks to answer the question posed by the editors in its introduction. To what extent and in what ways has the Australian media either facilitated or failed in communicating the aspirations of the Aboriginal polity? To consider its findings and explore the reasons behind the media's failings, I talked to Professor Heidi Norman and journalist Jack Lattimore. My name's Heidi Norman and I'm a research professor at the University of Technology, Sydney. I um, have a research focus on Aboriginal political history and my family come from northwestern New South Wales. Um, and I living live here in Sydney, born here in Sydney, live in Sydney. Um, my name is Jack Lattimore, and I'm a senior editor at NITV uh, News. I'm an online editor there. Here I'm from up around what is now Port Macquarie, group, and I've worked in black media for most of the past decade, including Indigenous X, Koori Mail, NITV. I think that's it. Heidi. Could you please briefly run through the findings of the project presented in the book? Last year, we, we put out a book and the title of the book is Does the Media Fail Aboriginal Political Aspirations? And for this work, we looked at 45 years of news media reporting of key political moments. So we started with the Larrakia petition in 1972 and we ended with the Uluru Statement of 2017. So that those those case studies there are 11 case studies all up. They bookend the 45 years. And in terms of, you know, why why do this work? I think anyone, um, even with, a, with only a sort of passing interest in Aboriginal affairs and in, in um, with a sort of um, interest in how the media works and what the, the stories the media tells, if we ask them, does the media fail Aboriginal political aspirations? I think most people would intuitively say, yes, the media doesn't do a good job. And what really what we wanted to do with this work is understand the what the media does in terms of reporting Aboriginal political aspirations. So there have been plenty of studies of, say, 
representation, but we wanted to look specifically at political aspirations and see how the media responded to those political demands. And part of our thinking is, you know, the Uluru Statement that came out in 2017, it was, you know, enormously impactful. It had enormous poetry about it. It had enormous authority and it was very well orchestrated and staged moment. And, and I think it was a, a strategic political intervention. But the other part of the story is that before 2017 in the Uluru Statement, there have been many petitions, mm. uh, many letters, many rallies. There have been petitions to the Crown, to the Queen, in, say, the um, Larrakia petition. There was a Baranga Statement where that petition was put to the Prime Minister. There are many occasions like this. The media is a vital part of communicating ideas and it's a vital part of democracy. And so we wanted to ask, what does the media do? How could they do it differently in order to get us out of this situation where we are constantly organising moments to make strategic interventions to have Aboriginal aspirations heard? So that's really where we were coming from with this work, is to see what the media as a fourth pillar of democracy, what they need to do different in order to to make some kind of change in the lives of Aboriginal people. I think it's interesting what you pointed out. It, it does seem like um, Indigenous activism is kind of a series of moments rather than a, a, there's no sense of continuity in it, in, in media coverage. Jack, as a journalist, what is your experience of media coverage of issues that pertain to the First Nations peoples of Australia? Well, it's been done pretty as, as, you, as you point out, it's been done uh, intermittently and I would say at a fairly poor quality in terms of uh, representation of Aboriginal people on those issues. Uh, so I think, um, look, in general, it was pretty poor. It's improved more recently as we've had more entrance into, in terms of black entrance into the space. Those outlets, I think, have been really welcomed by Aboriginal communities and also individuals. And I think there's a better job being done these days because the black media has held and influenced uh, mainstream media to just change their practices a little bit. Not as well or as much as most of us would like to see, but uh, we're at that initial stage. And I think you can really see that uh, across the last week or so as the um, BLM uprisings in the US have influenced the local sort of uh, situation um, as much as they have. Uh, and we've seen just well, more coverage of black issues, generally more discussion of deaths in custody and um, other you know, main issues around the Black Lives Matter, Aboriginal Lives Matter sort of movements. And a number of organisations uh, a little bit more open to including black voices, whether they be the ABC or Channel 9 or Channel 7. We haven't seen that before. So I think black media and black media outlets are influencing the journalistic practices um, of other newsrooms. Um, but yeah, up to, to, like, to date, coverage of you know those, um, whether it be press or policy uh, or advocacy for policy hasn't really been that great. 
what do you think, Heidi, is the cumulative effect of that? Because that is one of the findings of the book that there's, the agency of First Nations people is always excluded. You know, uh, they, there's a general ignoring all the groundwork that was done before the event that's reported on is, is looked at. And at that point, we just look at power, powerful people. What is the cumulative effect of this sort of um, what Jack was mentioning as well of kind of uh, not including black voices? In, in this work, uh, the 45 years, we looked at mainstream print media coverage. And the reason we did that is because our argument is that if we're going to look at 45 years, Indigenous media is a relatively new phenomenon, um, effective, powerful, important, and so is social media. So we have seen over the 45 years that is that our study covered enormous change in the media, enormous um, media concentration, but certainly considerable change. But we, for our purposes, we focused on mainstream print media coverage. And in relation to those case studies, we looked at the 10 articles immediately surrounding that event. And our logic was to think about those articles as being a genuine, spontaneous, unsort of processed account of the event. Mm. And we looked at the, the language, um, the headings, the images, the placement in, in, the, um, te- in the paper, um, the number of Aboriginal voices. And what we found over time, over the 45 years, so from 1972 to 2017, there was no article written by an Aboriginal journalist Um, There were some opinion pieces, maybe a handful of opinion pieces, um, but no articles written. And what we found is that over time, you would have intuitively, you would think that there would be an improvement in media coverage, Um, but that wasn't the case. In fact, what we found is certainly around the Howard era, there's a real tilt that happens and there is a much more conflictual reporting. And um, within a story, there emerges a de- within each story a debate over, say, practical or symbolic reconciliation mm. um, or uh, Aboriginal affairs policy. So, in fact, the reporting becomes more conflicted and there are multiple conflicting positions that, um, from an Aboriginal perspective, within news reporting. But there's a few other things that I think are worth um, highlighting. And this is what we, what, um, we refer to in our study that is... Um, has a place in wider literature, and it's the absence of an Aboriginal or Indigenous standpoint. So nowhere in this reporting do we see uh, a journalist telling a story that imagines an Aboriginal reader or that imagines the story being told from an Aboriginal perspective. And that might sound a bit simple in some respects, but what that means is that dominant society reads and navigates, negotiates, adjudicates on um, Aboriginal political aspirations. So when you put, say, a petition, what ends up becoming discussed, as Amy Thomas shows in this, is what Princess uh, Margaret was wearing, what they had for dinner, what what their activities are. So Aboriginal aspirations sit in relation to a dominant narrative about, basically, about white Australians and, you know, that the authority of the state. There is a shift that takes place, a subtle shift, but for the most part, what we found is an absence of an Aboriginal standpoint. And so that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. One is that 
Aboriginal voices, if they ever are included, they're generally lower down in the story and that it's white voices or non-Aboriginal voices that navigate and adjudicate the ideas that Aboriginal people are putting forward. Hello, Florence here. I remember discovering community radio around 40 years ago when I was still a youngster. You don't hear me on the air, at least not anymore. Lives change while we are busy making other plans. But one thing that's still the same is 3CR's annual call-out for financial support and donations to those of us who can afford it. If you can, please dig deep with me to ensure that 3CR stays alive and thrives, especially at these times. Go to 3cr.org.au to find out about your way of paying up. Stay safe and keep connected to your local community radio station, 3CR. You're with Communication Mixdown, and this week I'm using a recent book titled Does the Media Fail Aboriginal Political Aspirations? 45 years of news media reporting of key political moments to examine how the media covers First Nations activism. Alongside talking about the really interesting and important research featured in the book, I was motivated to do this show now when I saw a tweet from Jack about how journalists getting in touch with him were asking him for his contact book. Can you please share some of the interactions that led to that tweet? Yeah, well, it wasn't just this week, but uh, really highlighted uh, with the influx of interest in, as I said a moment ago, in Aboriginal affairs, particularly around deaths in custody. Journalists from other outlets getting in touch and asking me how to get in touch with my sources. So even on stories that were involved uh, in the BLM movement, but you know, on, on other topics and subjects um, that may have been anonymous sources or you know, sources that requested to remain unidentified, asking how they could get in touch with these people. So that you know, that was one, and then you know, a number of others uh, around wanting me to give them numbers for pretty good gets. Um, you know, people like Marcia, Martin, um, and these are relationships that want to build on trust over a period of time. So, well, there's two things. They build on trust over a period of time, but more, you know, generally, what journalist hands over all of their good work and, and worth and value, yeah. uh, just at the request of uh, a journalist, and in this case, a non-Indigenous, number of non-Indigenous journalists. So, to me, it just felt like it was a, you know, it was a hot topic for the week or the fortnight, and newsrooms wanted in on that and they had not put in the groundwork over the years and decades prior uh, to this event to develop those relationships and that trust with Aboriginal sources. Yeah, let's let's just kind of, a lot of our listeners are journalists. I, and I, I'll just note that Marcy Lankin's email is actually available on the University of Melbourne <laughs> website. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, yeah. you know, you can just you can just get that from there. How do journalists usually cultivate sources? Just for, just for background, um, what do you think are the barriers to finding First Nations voices, I guess? Well, firstly, uh, from a non-Indigenous, non Indigenous journalists and non-Indigenous newsroom or news organisation, they don't know Aboriginal people. Yeah, There might be a couple of people working within those organisations that do, but generally, broadly speaking, they're not really, haven't been, and 
you know, possibly after this fortnight, continue to not be interested in talking to actual Aboriginal people, whether they're academics, you know, at that sort of level, or whether they're people within remote communities or regional communities, or even people, you know, just down here on the street, whether it's in Fitzroy, Collingwood, or over here in St Kilda. It's a challenge that's, that's really difficult to overcome for them to, you know, actually approach and talk to an Aboriginal person. I think that's the main one. And where that stems from is probably goes back to their, you know, tertiary, uh, yeah, well, high school and, and tertiary education. Also, the way that they've been influenced from media from a very young age. Mm. I don't think there's any genuine awareness of you know, Aboriginal culture, contemporary Aboriginal cultures. Uh, there might be a touch on uh, traditional scenarios that they may have got in history for an hour or so in school, but sort of understanding and awareness of Aboriginal communities and cultures today, uh, you know, they just are not across it. So it's very difficult for them to, one, get their head around approaching these people, two, uh, feeling comfortable in themselves. There's a lot of almost anxiety from non-Indigenous journalists I speak to sometimes that ask to do a, a story on Aboriginal affairs, that they'll get it wrong. Um, like there's a whole host, I could go on for probably half an hour here about the reasons <laughs> why. Essentially it comes down to that, there's, there's just... They have not developed the relationships. And what, you know, I've always advocated for, and not only I, but you know, many decades of journalists before me, is a different kind of journalism. One that, you know, fosters relationships first, not only in Aboriginal affairs journalism, but to use the practices that we use in journalism elsewhere to improve the practice. It seems to me you're being kinder than I would be. I mean, I think you can go to, you know, places like... Indigenous X and and see names and people who've spoken on things and and then try to trace them like you would you know I, I don't think journalists know people they write about necessarily all the time but yeah, I, no no you're right it's, there is a reluctance but the number of people I, when I was with Indigenous X for a year or just over a year a little while ago now the number of journalists who had no idea of its existence you know was always surprising because we had some. Uh, across that 18 months or so that I was there, there was some really influential posts of the Twitter account and more influential and well-known Aboriginal people writing uh, for the uh, for the website. And, you know, journalists just weren't across it. And these were tweets and Facebook posts to some extent, but publications uh, in The Guardian, um, and they get picked up internationally. And journalists, inquiring minds, were completely unaware of what was going on. Do you think the patterns we're talking about here are reflective of broader problematic practice by Australian media? I guess I guess what I mean is, is there a general veneration of power and the powerful as opposed to a commitment to hold them to account that prevails in media practice, which is sort of responsible not just for denying the voice of First Nations peoples, but that of any community that's affected by an issue in the spotlight? I would say yes. You know, in, in, in the practice, in journalistic practice, I would say yes these days. I was asked about that Steve Bannon interview yesterday um, where I think it was Sarah Ferguson interviewed Steve Bannon over a year or so ago. And I was asked, you know, what was the issue that you had with that if you had an issue? I did have a little bit of an issue. The thing with the Steve Bannon scenario uh, for me personally was that 
but wasn't prosecuted particularly well. Well, two things, really. Sarah Ferguson, apart from being a woman, um, which, you know, the whole Steve Bannon phenomena was pretty gross towards as well, but more so towards ethnic minorities and marginalised peoples. Sarah Ferguson didn't have skin in the game and she didn't prosecute the interview very well. She didn't interrogate his responses to the extent that they needed to be interrogated. Now, whether that was because there were certain confines or restrictions placed upon where she could go, the time she had questions that she could ask, I don't know. But if that was the scenario, perhaps they should have walked away. Um, and if it wasn't the scenario and she didn't go there, I believe that that is the main issue that most people had with that going to air. To a certain extent, there was the, that sort of power play there that sent it off on the wrong foot. Are we seeing now an, a decisive shift in, in the coverage of issues with with, uh, with First Nations people? I know decisive is a tricky word uh, because this book and, and the history of First Nations activism more broadly shows that progress is not linear. Nonetheless, as you identified in the case study, uh, of media coverage of the Uluru Statement, Heidi, there is a change in coverage. Um, I'll get you to take this first, Jack, because I know you have to go. Does that change stick? And are we seeing it in the coverage of the Black Lives Matter protests? There has been improvement in coverage over the last, I'd say since probably 2016, 17, 18. One point that Heidi was just saying that we did not see an Aboriginal or, you know, First Nations uh, journalist writing about Aboriginal affairs for a long, long period. A, a journalist, not a commentator or, you know, a pundit, uh, a politician, but an actual journalist covering Aboriginal affairs. We didn't see that in the mainstream press until really re- uh, recently, possibly as recent as 2018. I'm not sure. I'll have to check. We're seeing more journalists, predominantly women, young women, First Nations women picking up these roles now and uh, being, I said it a little while back, but, you know, Aboriginal journalists are really hot right now. So, you know, they're getting these gigs. Now, that's good. That's great. That's progress. But it's kind of like the same as what we've seen with diversity on the screen. Uh, we see brown, black faces presenting news as anchors in front of the cameras out there as, you know, on, on the ground reporters. But we don't see or didn't see those same people progressing into editorial positions or executive positions within the newsroom. Again, that's what we're seeing here with this um, inclusion of Aboriginal journalists that are slowly being welcomed into these uh, traditionally white news organisations. So hopefully we will see them, you know, each of these journalists progress through. Hopefully they're not just being used as access points or black cladding, you know, during periods like we've seen in the last fortnight. We're getting across some pretty tough going and heavy terrain at the moment in terms of national identity here in Australia, but you know, more urgently black bodies. And news organisations like all corporations are very mindful of social licence these days. And by having one black body or two black bodies that are you know, employed, that kind of gives them, in their eyes, um, the license to go in and tackle these stories. And I, I don't know. I think that's there's a lot of question marks around that, you know, whether they're genuine about it, whether it's just another ruse. Um, I think the, the coverage in the Uluru Statement is different, media coverage, and it's partly a function of location, of um, a really clever political um, strategy to engage the media. 
and about the, the, the importance of messaging. And so though, just to sort of unpack those ideas, if we consider that the convention was hosted in Central Australia, so it had a sort of physical, a geographic kind of isolation about it. it in a way, participation was controlled. Those journalists attending were part of an Aboriginal world, so they were, they were very much in the minority. Um, there was a strong presence of Indigenous media. So you can imagine those journalists present, you know, possibly for the first time, but certainly it was a rare moment where they were part of an Aboriginal world. They were in an everyday, all-day phenomenon of being part of Aboriginal worlds, part of the discussion, um, eating with, chatting with, um, reminded that they were, whose land they were on. This is very different to how most journalists would be living there their daily job as, an, as a journalist and I think there is a certain intimacy that they were that they were drawn into for those journalists. The second thing is that the messaging was very controlled so the Uluru statement was convened on the anniversary of the 67 referendum so some of the narratives are already put in place and um, the third point is that the Uluru Statement, on the final day of the convention, it was issued to the people, mm. whereas in all of the other case studies we looked at, generally speaking, Aboriginal political aspirations take the form of a petition or, you know, the, the bark petitions or, in the case of Yakala, a petition that was almost three metres long, a paper, paper petition that now sits in the Museum of um, Democracy in Canberra although it's a bit torn because of the, the mm. police tore it in a, um, at that event. So the Uluru Statement was issued to the people, and that is quite a radical shift. Sounds kind of like just, oh, yeah, of course, that's interesting. But if we mm. compare it with other events, normally they you make a petition to the formal institutions of power. Yes. And so what this statement said was, we want you to walk with us. Yes. We want you to be with us. This is, you know, this is our story. And I think that's really significant because it means that, you know, say in the case of the Barunga Statement, those state they are housed in the Parliament House. And, of course, the ability of the government to respond or not to respond marks the success or otherwise of those particular political moments. Mm. Whereas the Uluru Statement is not... The power to cancel it or to respond to that is not held by the formal representatives of power or the formal representatives of the state. And I think that is a political strategy that changed the reporting of it. Do you feel that that sort of the coverage, the positivity in the coverage is translating to coverage of Black Lives Matter protests in Australia? Just my opinion, if you like, um, yes. you know, in the absence of any really careful sort of forensic study, is what I'd say is that there is a mobilisation of the younger generation. They are facing as an existential crisis. Mm. Climate change, for instance, is um, they've been mobilised by the climate change movement. They're mobilised by the reality that their future is really at risk. Yes. And I think for young people, certainly in the Black Lives Matter rally that I attended in Sydney, there are a lot of young people there and certainly a lot of people of colour. Yeah. You know, the world is a brown place. Yeah. And, um, you know, young people are concerned about their futures. They know that they have to build a different society. And racism, consumption, 
mechanisms, processes of production are all interlinked. Mm. And I think it's quite amazing that they're making those links and that they have a sense of solidarity with Aboriginal people. I don't know if young people are thinking in these exactly in these terms, but I think what they are saying is that the current way our society is organised and our economy and the way government represents the people is inadequate. You've been listening to Professor Heidi Norman from UTS and news editor at NITV Jack Lattimore talking to me about how the media covers the political aspirations of Australia's First Nations peoples. That's all for tonight. We'll be back again next week at 6pm and we're going out tonight with a song chosen by Heidi. This is Saltwater Country by the Pigram Brothers. Lend me a buddy tonight, my blue water lady. This salty wind is getting to my bones. These legacies are moving too slowly. See you.